question. Can you clarify the difference between seraphim and cherubim? I, I, uh, in Isaiah 6 and uh, Revelation 4, seems that these play different roles and responsibilities. I don't have any insight into the order of angelic beings. Uh, we are... Um, we we can infer because there's descriptions of six wings and two wings and four wings and this so forth and so on. Um, how much of that is literal? How much of that is uh, symbolic and metaphor? Uh, we're not really told. Angels, when they appear in physical form, typically appear in the form of human um, rather than with the wings. So the wings you're often seeing in a visionary status. But it, I don't have any specific answers to, well, seraphim, uh, you know, they work uh, from 9 to 5 on Thursdays and... <laughs> You know, they're they're all angels, and they're all ministering spirits, or they're ministering intelligent beings working for the kingdom of God to help us. Um, but more than that, I don't have any specifics in they, how they divvy up their responsibilities. I always thought that any fear comes from the evil one. Why are there so many Bible references that say fear God? Thank you. My friends, family, and myself learned so much from your classes. So the word fear you have to um, differentiate. Uh, in the old King James English, fear God, glory to him. Fear can mean awe or reverence. So the primary reason most of the time it says fear God is it means awe or revere him. Uh, whereas um, the fear that Adam and Eve had when they ran and hid, that was not all in reference. That was fear or anxiety or terror or dread, and that is what we're not to have for God. There's one place, however, that, in fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, both types of fear apply there. Um, awe and reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. But if you're worshiping a golden idol, having an orgy uh, around a golden idol, and God thunders, and you go, I'm scared, actual scared, and you stop the orgy, and you begin to listen to what the Lord says, then wisdom has begun. And so there is a place where a loving parent will thunder somebody in absolute rebellion in order to get them to stop the rebellion and start to listen. But ultimately, then when you do, you come to awe and revere God and you stop because perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love doesn't cast out all reverence for God. It casts out all terror of God. And so even at thundering at Sinai, you read in the text in Exodus 20, Moses stands there and says, there's no need to be afraid. Uh, if COVID-19 is not as serious as it is made out to be, then why were there so many patients in the hospital I worked at last year? My friends who are nurses in the ICU, emergency department, or uh, OR, or on other floors say that uh, they were surrounded by death and serious illness in the highest numbers they've ever seen. I saw a hospital have to make uh, 20 more intensive care rooms out of regular floor rooms and rent ventilators and equipment to uh, aid the influx of patients who were seriously ill. Uh, we were at capacity. So this is one of the most subtle deceptions that have been put on our, uh, on the world. And let, let me use a metaphor and I'll bring you back to the actual data. Uh, uh, want you to, want you to consider this metaphor. If we, we have the means now, we're talking about prostate cancer. We have the means with, with blood testing and screening to identify prostate cancer very early. And if you do, it has greater than 99 point whatever percent, more than 99% of the people who identify early survive. It's curable. If you don't treat it early and you allow it to grow and spread, 30% of people survive or 70% of people will die if you let it spread, and then you still give them treatment, but you give them treatment after it's spread, 70% die. If you give them treatment early, more than 90, less than 1% of people die. Now, should we say that prostate cancer 
treated early with less than a percentage of people, 1% of people, more than 99-something percent of people survive it, is that something that is a major um, epidemiological crisis? Or it is a serious, something serious, but something that actually isn't a threat. It's not that big a threat. But if you let it spread and 70% of people who get it die from it, that's quite serious, isn't it? COVID-19 is very much like this. If you treat it early, it's no more serious than a seasonal flu. And it never was from the very beginning. 0.1 to 0.3% of people in a population will die pretty much doing almost nothing. I'm waiting until late. But if you treat early, you reduce that by 85%. And so what you're seeing in the hospitals, a couple problems. One, the CDC guidelines and recommendations specifically recommended no treatment. People identify as positive with symptoms, no treatment. A positive prostate screening test, Go home, no treatment. Come back when your bone pain is so bad that you can't stand it anymore. Then we'll give you treatment, and 70% of people die. And, And if that was the way the recommendations were, no prostate cancer treatment until they come back and they're such distress they can't stay at home anymore. Then we treat, and we, have, and we say, wow, prostate cancer, it's such a terrible thing. It kills so many people. No, what's killing people are the bad treatment protocols. Not only did they tell them go home with no treatment until you can't breathe, then come back. Then when you come back, CDC guidelines and recommendations recommend that you use an antiviral drug called remdesivir that failed its trials in every previous trial for antiviral in, in, in multi-wing trials. They had remdesivir, they had another experimental agent, they had another experimental agent, and they had a placebo, four-wing trial. And in, in the four-wing trial, um, the remdesivir arm had multiple times more deaths than any of the other trials, including the placebo arm. So they had to stop the trial. They had to stop the study because so many people were dying in the remdesivir arm. But the CDC recommends... Don't treat until you can't, can't breathe and you come back and you get this drug that failed its trials. On top of that, the CDC recommends against ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and other treatment regimens that have been shown to reduce hospitalizations and deaths by 85%. So the reason this is one of the worst lies is because these doctors and nurses on the front lines were seeing people dying and that and they hated what they saw but they falsely concluded that covid was the cause when in fact it was the corrupt and perverse recommendations of the CDC that still are in effect that are the cause i heard a radio commentator comparing the use of psychotropic drugs to the increase in violence and shootings are there any studies available on this, or is there any validity to this claim? Uh, that's an interesting question, and uh, I like this question because it's going to require a nuanced level of thinking to actually differentiate the, the hyperbole and the misdirection from the actual facts. Um, and, and here, so first off, let's just talk about association rather than causation. The data is very clear that over the last 30 years, mental health problems across the board have increased. Across the board, anxiety's up, depression's up, uh, uh, autistic problems are up. Across the board, drug and alcohol problems are up. Mental health problems across the board have increased the last 30 years substantially. 
would you also then expect that treatment for mental health problems would increase? It has. More people are getting prescriptions. More prescriptions are being written. Okay? Because more people are seeking treatment. Now, they're not being, not as many people being treated as could be treated, but yes, mental health treatment has gone up as well. And so, so this is a cause, uh, uh, a, uh, an association. More drugs are being prescribed, and we're seeing more violence. So it must be the psychotropic drugs that are causing the violence. Hmm. Well, that's, that would be like, well, I hope you can see that, 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 that correlation is not causation. They're going up because they're treating problems. So what, what's, what's the problem? Well, there's warnings that some of these medicines can cause violence or suicide. And so let's look at the suicide one. It was studied because it was studied very, very intensely. You may know that a few, was it 15 years ago now, um, that, um, SSRIs uh, got a black box warning from the FDA that increased suicidality in adolescents. And because of that warning that if you give an adolescent an SSRI, it's like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, uh, Lexapro, Celexa, those types of medicines. If you give, give one to an adolescent, there's a black box warning that it can increase suicidality. Because of that, um, marked drop-off in prescribing of antidepressant medications to adolescents happened. Because we don't want to increase suicidality, do we? And what do you think happened? Suicides tripled or quadrupled in adolescents, actual deaths. In the studies that gave the warning, they had increased suicidality, first off, which meant they had some, they had some reference, I feel suicidal, I have a suicidal thought. Deaths didn't actually go up. Just the impulse or the thought that was reported in the active arm compared to the placebo arm, so they had more suicidality, meaning indicators of suicide, but actual deaths didn't increase. But that resulted in reduction in prescribing to, to adolescents who had depression, and actual deaths in adolescents from suicide markedly increased. So they looked a little closer then, what's going on? So if you take a group of adolescents with depression and you don't treat them, about 10% will die of suicide. One out of 10 will die of suicide if you don't treat them. That's a, that's a high mortality rate, folks, for an illness. Okay? If you treat them, the suicidality drops, so I think it's around 15 to 2%. Something like that. Marked reduction in suicide deaths if you treat them. Here's the caveat. If you have 100, 100 adolescents with depression and you don't treat, let's just say, and we give them all number 1 to, to 100, numbers 1 through 10 die by suicide. If you treat that same hundred, one through ten do not die by suicide. Numbers 50 and 51 die by suicide. In other words, the ones who die by suicide from an antidepressant or get suicidal from an antidepressant are different individuals than the ones who will die if you don't treat. So on a community population basis, you actually reduce suicides by treating adolescent depression with antidepressants. But... Some individuals will have increased suicidality if you treat them. Do you see the layers here? And then what will happen is you will get propagandists that will take some of this data and take a warning and uh, take uh, individual reports, and then they will present it out there in some way that these psychotropics are actually the cause. There's no evidence psychotropics are actually causing any of the violence or suicides. Uh, on a popular, or the increase, I'm talking about the increase numbers. It's, it's not. I don't see any evidence of that. Posting for a friend, uh, first question, what is the omega of apostasy and the alpha is pantheism? Everybody know what that question is referencing? 
I didn't think so. Uh, back in the, a little over 100 years ago, uh, I was in the early part of the, ni- of the 20th century, 1905, somewhere around there. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, there was what was termed the Alpha of Apostasy. And the Alpha of Apostasy was advanced by um, uh, Har- J-, J. Harvey L- um, Kellogg, uh, who was the head of the sanitarium at um, Battle Creek. And he advanced a, uh, a position that ultimately was pantheism. And the pantheism position is that God is in everything. God is in the chair. God is in the carpet. God is in the ceiling. God is in the in everything. And because God is in everything, God is in us because all things exist by him and created by him and are sustained by him. So he's in everything. And therefore, anything we do is an evidence of what God would have us do. And it ultimately becomes uh, God is not an intelligent, separate being. Uh, he is, uh, he is, uh, he is um, a, a diffuse, um, non-intelligent entity is what pantheism does. And so for any decision you make is really an evidence of God. And we actually have holiness within us because God lives in us. Okay, this is what pantheism is. Asking about, and, and Ellen White wrote that uh, this was the alpha of heresies, and before Christ comes, the church would face the omega of heresies. Never defined what the omega was. And so it's been left open, and it's been uh, multiple different things. Um, what is the omega? What is the omega? What is the omega? And there's uh, uh, one of her children, um, before he died, uh, wrote that he had uh, reviewed at least 12 different theories on what the omega was, and he didn't think any of them were it. So um, my, my, I don't take a hard position on it. Uh, I can tell you the impact of the Alpha heresy was um, not, not just theological, there was also an aspect of power and control. Kellogg wanted to actually wrest control of the church away from the theologians because he felt uh, uh, that they were quite inferior in their intellect and, uh, and less capable men than he was. Um, to, to a great degree. And there was some truth in that, in the fact that he was highly educated. And back then, our church had very low educated um, theologians. And we have changed that to a great degree by bringing the educational system up. And we have theologians now highly educated. Okay, So there, there, was, there, was, there was some basis for his, his concerns. But, but he was wanting, there was, it was not just the theological, there was the who's going to control the, the, the ship, who's going to be the steering. That led to a big rift in the uh, Adventist church, uh, in which Ellen White's writings were neglected and, and rejected. Her writings were that the, that the medical ministry and the theological ministry should be together, and they should be presented together, they should be taught together, and the gospel message should be advanced together as a joint message, uh, the medical and the gospel ministries. But after uh, Kellogg's move uh, in the hundred some years ago, the theological people became fearful of the medical people, basically, and that's still true today. And they uh, made sure that uh, basically the Loma Linda and the Andrews campus uh, were pretty far apart, not actually together. And you've never really seen physicians uh, again having positions of significant authority in our church. And then the theological paradigms that the church began to evolve and and present were contradictory to the healing message of 1888. Um, And so my view, if you want my view, and and, and again, I don't really go into the whole Alpha and Omega thing, but my view is that it's the opposite of what what Kellogg was presenting. It's the other end of the spectrum, uh, which this penal legal um, infection of our church uh, is the Omega um, that uh, that also keeps the the medical ministry out of the uh, presentation of the gospel. But And the second question, how would, you, how would the quotation below reconcile with the view of the vestiges of sin will be removed from the believer's character during the investigative judgment? Um, so 
the, uh, the quote is, the traits of character you cherish in life will not be changed by death nor by the resurrection. Uh, you must come up from the grave with the same disposition and manifested and so forth and so on. Uh, this is talking about the living saints who are translated to heaven. Uh, it's not talking about the um, people like um, Martin Luther and many others who died trusting in Jesus but hadn't uh, yet uh, maybe had victory over certain aspects of their life. So this is two different population groups being addressed here. Grace is an attribute of God shown to undeserving human beings. Uh, Heavenly Places, chapter 28, that was a quote. Grace is an attribute of God shown uh, to undeserving human beings. Uh, please uh, further explain your thoughts um, on the idea of undeserving. So if you simply consider grace in the same way you would consider forgiveness for sins, God is forgiving, but he doesn't have to extend forgiveness to those who've never done wrong. The angels don't need, the angels, Gabriel doesn't need to be forgiven. Even though God is still a forgiving God. Grace is like that. God's grace is God's action to fix, heal, resolve the sin problem. The angels in heaven don't need the remedy to fix and resolve the problem in their characters, hearts, and minds. They did need truth to settle the lies, but they didn't need a new heart and right spirit to be transformed. The grace is God's activity to restore sinners to righteousness. Angels didn't need that. We do. So that's, that's the difference. Do you have a, uh, let's see. Um, Okay, here's, uh, I almost missed this one. Uh, the pastors, Christians who are telling others about God but teach the commandments have been done away with. You can eat whatever you want. Eternal hellfire. The Sabbath isn't important. Uh, is that bringing glory to God just by talking about him and sharing Jesus with people even though, in your opinion, the rest of their conclusions are wrong? Or uh, would God prefer people not sharing about him at all if their message is misleading people? So the primary issue is not the specific doctrines. The primary issue is the character of God. Those who put Jesus on the cross wanted him down by sunset so they could go to church on Sunday. No, they wanted to keep the Sabbath. They had the right, they ate the right foods. They had the right understanding of what happens to a soul at death. They ha most of them did anyway. But what they didn't have is they didn't have the right understanding of God's character and his methods. And so the doctrines are only valuable to us to the degree they accurately help us understand God and his character and methods. And so um, my view is that uh, Jesus, God, wants people to share the Bible, the Gospels, they know it, with others, leading people to study for themselves. <laughs> Don't believe my view because I told it to you, but I want to tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me, and then here's the Bible. And you begin studying for yourself, the Holy Spirit will lead you into the truth with you. Have a sincere heart. If you seek me with all your heart. That's what the scripture says. So I believe that even those who may believe different than us on various doctrinal points, God would have them out there sharing the scriptures, particularly giving the Bible into people's hands, telling them what Jesus has done for them, and, and, and helpfully motivating people to study scripture for themselves. Let the Holy Spirit then lead them. So I, I think that's a blessing that they do that. Lately, there has been a lot of discussion of the man of Romans 7. Um, me, uh, let's see. 
main focus is Paul and uh, either explaining the condition before Damascus Road unconverted and how he struggled because he is still a sinner, or it was about the struggle dealing with a converted heart and mind and how to deal with his years of damaged habits. Uh, second, uh, so my view, just read, read uh, Romans 7 out of the remedy. It makes it extremely clear, my view on that, and I think you'll find it very persuasive. So just, and you can go right here on, on Common Reason, Remedy at the top, Romans 7, and just go read it right there, or you can get the Remedy app and read it there. But I would encourage you, just read what I wrote about Ro- on Romans 7, and I think that'll answer your question. Second thought, which I, don't under- uh, which I don't understand, is that some say that it means we will be sinning until Christ comes. Uh, thought. So how do you define sin? What law model do you use? Uh, is sin a, a, a legal process of behaviors and deeds done? Or is sin an attitude of the heart? Okay, and this is, this is the difference. The converted person has a heart attitude. They never want to let God down again. They never want to sin again. But it is possible in a um, weak human body with conditioned responses and habit patterns that uh, you end up uh, taking a, a particular course of action, either by mistake, by reflex, or by, uh, by trickery. Uh, by misunderstanding, by confusion, that uh, in retrospect you realize that was not what I wanted to do. That's not what my heart would like to do. I, oh, 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 sinful man that I am, who will con- save me from this body of death? And so the heart of the converted person will grieve when they find themselves taking actions that they truly uh, in their heart didn't want to do, and then they seek to do better through God's grace, where the unconverted person um, actually justifies, they're glad to do it, they'll do it again, they'll try to recruit others to do it. And so there's the big difference. It's not about the deeds, it's about the motive of the heart. And, and that's my view of that. My question is about internal family systems therapy. Um, helpful or should it be avoided? Uh, I don't really have any comment on that. You'll have to do your own research on that. Uh, again, the destroying angel is to pass through the land. Uh, there is to be a mark placed upon God's people, and that mark is the keeping of his holy Sabbath. Uh, please share your thoughts on this. So um, this is uh, referencing uh, Heavenly Places, page 143. So keeping of the Holy Sabbath, what does that mean? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days you labor and do all their work, blah, 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 blah. Okay, the Sabbath is a sign of, that I am the Lord that will make you holy. So if you do wicked, sinful things on the Sabbath, have you made it less holy? No. Have you made the Sabbath less holy? If you do righteous things on the Sabbath, have you made it more holy? So are you keeping the Sabbath holy? Or are you keeping yourself holy? And what does it mean to be holy? And can you be a holy, righteous person one day in seven? Sabbath keeping is not about a, a specific list of deeds to do on a particular day of every week. Sabbath keeping is about having the law written on your heart and mind for which the Sabbath is a sign. And the Sabbath is a sign, like a flag is a symbol. The U.S. flag is a symbol, and it's supposed to, you know, freedom and justice for all. It's supposed to be a symbol of that, okay? It can be perverted to, to symbolize something else, which has been done recently. But its true symbol is freedom and justice for all. The Sabbath is a symbol of God's kingdom of truth, presented in love, leaving free. The week of creation, he presents truth. He presents a whole world created to operate on the principles of other-centered giving and love with beings who were um, uh, designed in his image to give in love and bring forth beings in their image and, and, to, and to govern the world in love. And then he stopped using power. He rested, leaving his intelligent beings free. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. So the true Sabbath keepers are those who live those principles. 
We present truth and love. We lead people free. So I will tell you. I'm not going to tell you where. I'm not going to tell you what organizations. But I know uh, I had conversations here recently. Leaders at other non-Seventh-day Adventist institutions in this country during the COVID protected the consciences of their employees and their students and did not require vaccines and did not coerce them. People could get it if they wanted or not if they wanted. And they protected and stood up for them. And they go to church on Sunday. And many Adventist organizations... Uh, coerced and f- mandated that their employees and their students be vaccinated, even though they didn't want to, uh, didn't leave them free, uh, pressured them that they couldn't attend school or they would be terminated from their job if they didn't get it. I will tell you, those Sunday people who go to church on Sunday are the Sabbath keepers. Amen. And the ones who went to church on Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists who coerced, they're Sunday keepers. They're marked by the beast. The mark of the beast is using coercive force against somebody else's conscience. And Sunday is a sign of that, but it is not the, uh, and it's not going to church on Sunday. It's how did Sunday become a day of worship? Sunday became a day of worship through legislation. Sabbath became a day of rest by creation. Thus, these two days symbolize, like two flags, two systems of operating. One system is truth, love, and freedom, design law, for which the Sabbath is a sign. One system is imposed rules for which you will make up and coerce people, and thus the Jews who wanted Christ off the cross because they're forcing rules so they could keep the weekly Sabbath were actually marked by the beast. That's the reality of it. It's about character. And so the Bible says, I give you my Sabbath as a sign that I, will, I am the God who makes you holy. And if you're holy, you have Christ's character. If you have Christ's character, you have his law written on your heart. If you have his law written on your heart, you live out his methods, truth, love, freedom. I can't tell you how frustrated. I'll even say, well, hurt. And then when you're hurt, uh, the the, the band-aid for hurt is anger. Angry I have been at the leadership of my church. How blind. It's like Jesus talking today. You are blind guides leading the blind. And that's how I feel about my church on this issue especially when how they handled the COVID thing and the coercive pressure they put on their own employees and organizations and, and, and students rather than standing for liberty. Do you understand the COVID opportunity was an opportunity for the Seventh-day Adventist church to evangelize the entire world in, in a blink of an eye? All they had to do was instruct all of their organizations worldwide to say no to the mandates, to not, not say no to people wanting to get vaccinated voluntarily, No, no, that's fine. Anybody wants it, get it, please. No to coercion. No to coercion of conscience. Standing up. We will not shut our churches down. We will not coerce our employees. We will not fire people from hospitals. We're not going to play the coercion game. And the whole world would have said, and this is a worldwide organization, and we would have used our instruction, our our hospitals to file lawsuits in federal court in the the nations where you could do it, like in the U.S., to put an injunction against the administration that was going to halt payments and so forth. And the whole world would have said, what are they, who are these people? They're standing up for liberty. And where do you get this from? Because we worship a God who created the universe on love, and love only exists in atmosphere of freedom. Amen. And we didn't do it. We colluded with the state. Very sad. What has kept Gabriel from sinning, somebody asked. 
the truth of the cross. It's very clear. The angels in heaven had questions. They stayed loyal, but it wasn't until the cross. And Jesus says, I, I have been lifted up, will draw all men to me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world should be cast out. Cast out where? Cast out of all the affections and of all the friends that he used to have in heaven that uh, hadn't rebelled but, but still cared for him and, and were still open to his. And you see after the cross, you don't see any more stories like the first chapter of Job where Satan comes from walking to or from the earth to tempt the angels. You don't see it. Because he's restricted, restricted to earth. Why? Not by a force shield, but because by every intelligence in heaven, the cross settled the question. His lies would have no impact. Talk to the hand. We're not listening to you anymore. So his lies make no traction. The angels were secured in their loyalty because of the cross. The second part, let's see. So somebody's asking about the grace and being undeserving. Uh, the undeserving has to do with earning. In other words, the remedy that God provides for sin is not something that we worked for like a paycheck. That's all it means. We don't merit it by the fact that we've done so many good things or that we've done so many creative things that therefore we have a right by our own achievements to the remedy that God provides. We don't deserve it in the way that we think of the word. It doesn't mean we don't deserve it because we are so precious to God for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. We deserve it in the sense of who we are to him, but we don't deserve it in the sense of the things that we can achieve to merit a good grade, so to speak. That's what it means. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the truths that you've presented to us, and we pray that you will finish your work in our hearts and minds and help us present you faithfully. What, what, what wicked times we live in, Lord, and oh, it's so important that we understand your, your character, your design laws, and that you can um, write them into, into the inmost parts of our being, that we can be sensitive to the uh, infractions and the assaults on these principles, and that we will not be tricked into colluding with your enemy. We pray in your holy name. Amen.